welcome once again to a novel evening as ever i'm danny you can find me over on instagram as at a novel evening podcast and the same over on tiktok and for this episode i'm going to be discussing a book that i kid you not i devoured in like two days absolutely hooked on this book so well written so interesting so thoughtful but also twisty and turny everything I love in a good thriller and I am talking about The Leftover Woman by Jean Kwok oh my word it is spectacular um I'm gonna just give you the tagline because I don't give away any spoilers but it's two mothers two worlds one impossible choice um just gonna put that out there just gonna leave you with that because i have so many questions for jean about this book i cannot wait to talk to her i cannot wait to find out what drove her to write this novel you know the inspirations behind it and of course i'm very excited to check out what she's gonna bring for her novel evening so a massive hello to jean hello Hi, thank you so much for having me. This seems like it's going to be so fun. And I love your podcast. So Oh, thank you so much. I and do. Thank you for joining me from the Netherlands. Far more glamorous than where I am. I'm in Grey Devon in the UK. But what brought you to the Netherlands? Well, you know, I um I actually married a Dutch guy. Um, and this is where everybody goes, ooh, but then we're getting divorced right now. So oh. everyone's like, ooh. So this is like the romance to tragedy transition that happens very quickly. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I did fall in love with a Dutch man and I moved here as an adult, lived here for many years, brought up the kids basically, uh, but we are sadly getting divorced right now. So there you go. Will Life you is unpredictable. Do you think you would stay there? I am not totally sure right now. Sure, so I'm yeah. still in that phase where I I was caught by surprise. And so I have to, I'm really not sure. I, I am not sure. have you lived all over before? Have you lived in many different places before now? Are you kind of used to living all over the place? Well, I was born in Hong Kong and I grew up in New York City. Um, we were very poor. Um, we were, I was really a first generation immigrant. So I haven't, I, I wasn't one of those people who moved all around the world all the time, but I have been an immigrant twice in my life. So that's definitely also kind of informed my writing as well. And do you ever miss New York? I know for a lot of people who have grown up there and lived there, the change of lifestyle can be very different when you move away from there. Do you miss it? Oh, absolutely. I do. I do. Although I have to say when I moved away, I was glad because New York, you know, it's, it's wonderful, but it's busy. It's yeah. dirty. It's dangerous. There are so many issues. Um, but you know, when you're away, you're like, oh, the shopping, the people, the art, the music, you know, you start the museums, you know, you start to miss all of that. And now I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. I do love New York and I have a lot of friends and family there. Uh, but I also love being in Europe and being close to the UK and so many other countries. So it's hard to say right now what I'm going to do. Yeah. Well, look, first and foremost, congratulations on your upcoming novel, your latest novel. I've got it right here, The Leftover Woman. It's the cover. When it came through my door, I was like, oh, my word. I love it. Firstly, how much input do you get with the covers and things? Well, that's really a very interesting question. Legally, none. 
So in almost every author contract, it is stated very clearly that the cover is a marketing decision and lies within the providence of the publisher. Um, so that if, you know, that legally we are actually almost all the time, as far as I know, you do not have any type of say over the cover. In practice, what I have found is that every single publisher has been incredibly thoughtful um, and wanting to make sure that I was happy with the cover before proceeding. I'm not particularly difficult, um, but, you know, I have been really lucky in that just when there have been small things about the cover. So, for example, so this cover, um, let me, oh, here we go. I have my... I have my English version here. I think it's so beautiful. Um, so what you can what you can see here is that it this was taken from an actual photograph. So when I saw it first without the text, I was like, oh wow, clever photoshopping. But they were like, no, 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 it's a real photograph of a woman looking through the window with a fire in the background and with buildings reflected. Yeah. on um on the glass and it's so fitting for my book because of course my book opens with a character looking through a window it ends with a character looking through a window and the only thing was I loved it but in the original building in the original photo these buildings were different these buildings were kind of more generic um I think it was probably taken in China or something and the what I asked was, I said, could we possibly make the buildings look more like New York? Yeah. Because the story is about a person, you know, a young woman who comes from rural China to New York City. And that I thought would really show that transition between the two worlds. Um, and then they, oh my gosh, you know, artists are a breed apart. They came with all different types of buildings and all different types oh. of balconies. And like, you know, do you like this kind of ironwork or do you like that kind of ironwork? Um, and, you know, they at first they had like a kind of arched building, but then I, I felt that that took away that was maybe too distracting because you don't you don't really want people to be looking at the buildings you want people to be looking at her um so you know we we finally ended up with this kind of straight brownstone but I think still quite New Yorky look so I really I absolutely love yes. it I, I love the cover oh and I mean I have to say you've had some incredible books you know you've done so well does it ever grow old that feeling of a new book going in the world how does it feel each time? Is it different this time? You know, it's always um, so exciting and thrilling. But I have to say, you know, I think with like everything else in life, I, I was just reminded by about this by a friend, is that it's absolutely, I mean, I I am doing everything I dreamed of when I was an unpublished writer. And I, I would just imagine going on book tour and having books out and having people actually read them and say, you know, give me thoughts about something that I had made up um, in my mind. But when you're actually in that situation, sometimes you can be so consumed with anxiety you know, every author I know is so anxious. It's like we're so worried and scared about our career and the book not doing well and a devastating review. Um, and indeed, you know, what you just said, it's like you, I mean, I, I am never complacent. I'm never like, oh, I'm so bored. I don't care that the book is coming out. It's more that I'm, I'm really, I can get really stressed. Like, yeah. oh, my God, is it going to do well? And then, of course, there are many publicity demands, um, ever increasingly more so with social media and videos and 
it used to be only written what you needed to submit, but now people want a picture, they want a video, they want all kinds of other things um, as well. But no, it remains thrilling and exciting. And I, you know, I have to try to really remind myself to enjoy it, right. to enjoy the moment instead of worrying all the time. That's what I say, let yourself just enjoy that moment and not everything that surrounds it, because that's just noise, right? That's just a distraction from what you've achieved. And I have exactly. said, I said to you, I read this in two days. I loved it. I devoured it. I couldn't put it down. So for listeners, first and foremost, tell us what The Leftover Woman is about. Well, thank you so much for reading. I think you're such a wonderful reader. And thank you for taking the time to read because I know you're so busy um, with all the books that you have and your family and work and everything else. So The Leftover Woman is about a young woman in China named Jasmine who gives birth to um, a baby. And it's told shortly afterwards that her baby had died and she grieves terribly. But then she finds out a few years later that her baby had not died, but had been given away for adoption by her no good husband to a wealthy American couple in New York City. And when the book opens, Jasmine has followed them to New York to try to get her daughter back because the reason he gave the child away was because it was a girl and it was during the one child policy in China when families were only allowed one child and you know he wanted to have a son like so many other families uh, did. So, and the book is told from two points of view, from Jasmine, the biological mother's point of view, and from Rebecca, the adoptive mother's point of view, who is a wealthy publishing executive um, who has a pretty perfect life when we meet her, but this soon crumbles <laughs> over the course of the book, sadly, for Rebecca. And I mean, it's it's such a, it's a fun story in parts as well, because it's twisty, it's turny, you don't quite know what's going to happen next. We love a twisty book. And, but also it's a very poignant story. And I guess my question is, where did the inspiration for this come from initially? Well, you know, in I think that in many ways, this is my most personal book since mm -hmm. my debut novel, Girl in Translation. And the, it's really personal because it's about a part of my life that I haven't talked about much. Um, and that is my experience of growing up in a really traditional Chinese family. And my family loved me a lot, but, you know, I am the youngest of seven children and I am female. And, you know, in the Chinese hierarchical system, it's like, you know, the older you are in the family, the higher you are. And guess which gender um, is the desirable gender? It's like, it's not ours, honey. So, <laughs> so basically it was like, I was at the rock bottom of that hierarchy and I was, um, told to be obedient and to cook and to clean all things I was very, very bad at. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was uh, not allowed to look my brothers in the eyes. And it was really a system where clearly boys were more desirable. It's like at, you know, a wedding, a male relative would roll over the marriage bed to make it more likely that they would birth a son. Wow. Um so there are a lot of things like that. And so you're not allowed to really voice an opposing opinion. Uh, it wasn't expected that I would go to school or go to college. 
And so, you know, I really could understand Jasmine's plight, which is that she is, you know, a woman who is basically in a system where she's pretty powerless. But through her love of her child, she gains agency. Yeah. And I think the important thing to remember, you know, from what you're saying to me, it's so it's almost alien to me because it's a very obviously very different system here. But it's so important to remember that this is this is the traditions you were brought up with. And many, many people have been. I think to read this is kind of a I'm very privileged white Westerner picking up this book. There are elements of it that seem very unusual to me. And, and I have to admit, I was woefully ignorant with a lot of the policies that took place in China and some of the attitudes towards, you know, female children. I have a daughter. My eldest is a daughter. My youngest is a boy. The hierarchy in the pecking order in my household is very, very different. Uh, my daughter, <laughs> my daughter is in charge. She is the boss. She is the mother hen. My son is very wild and very feral, but he's in line for his sister. But it's important to remember, isn't it, that this is years of tradition that this is founded upon, right? This is not an unusual circumstance for many families, especially even if they've moved across to America or the UK or Europe. It's still within that society, right? Even even today. It's thousands of years of tradition. And the modern generation is a very different one. But I happen to come from a very old-fashioned family, also being the youngest of seven with a very big age gap um, between me and my closest siblings. You know, I had I was in a more traditional family than most. But indeed, you know, it's because in a rural society where there is nothing to help you after you grow old, you know, the only thing you can rely on is your own family. The idea was um, that girls married out of the family entirely. So basically, you would be left completely alone if you only had a girl. And so you needed a boy to both continue your family name and to care for you in your old age, that he and his wife would care for you. And traditionally, Chinese had really big families so that you could have all different types, you know, boys and girls. Um, but when they implemented this policy of one child and they enforced it extremely, extremely strictly, I mean, they forced abortions and sterilizations. And if you were caught, you know, the fines were up to like they were like a year's salary and people could lose their jobs. They were ostracized. I mean, it was it wasn't like, oh, a little fine. You know, it was really so intense that it would destroy a person's life to do it. You know, in the face of all of those thousands of years of tradition, I think that there were just a lot of people who felt like they had no choice. Yeah. And in the book as well, you know, when we see Jasmine getting married, she's so young. Yes. And this is, you know, she is a teenager. And I remember what I was like as a teenager, and it's such a huge, huge life decision for her. And, and you almost forget as you're reading that all these things are happening to her when she's so very young. And that was something that, that really kind of touched me because throughout the book, she's still so young as we're following her story. Whereas Rebecca is this kind of older, more sophisticated woman. She's got her life together. I found that such an interesting juxtaposition. This, this young girl who'd lived so little of life against this woman who'd lived so much life. And I mean, when you wrote it, did you always know Rebecca was going to be kind of the older, sophisticated woman? Was that kind of always in your head? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had the two of them in my head from the very beginning. And I, I have to say, you know, I, of course, I saw a great deal of myself in Jasmine's story. But I also see a great deal of myself in Rebecca's yeah. story, too. You know, because she's a publishing executive. And she is, you know, she's in her mid-30s. She is successful. She's ambitious. She's smart. She adores her daughter, her adopted Chinese daughter, uh, Fifi or Fiona. She's, she loved her with all her heart. And so, I mean, both Rebecca and Jasmine make huge mistakes over the course of the book. Um, but, you know, Rebecca is really doing her best. And I feel, I, I sympathize so much with her as a modern woman too, where you're just trying to juggle all of these balls. And, you know, society judges women, I think, much more harshly than they judge men. There are just so many more unspoken expectations uh, placed upon us. I have yet to really see a marriage that is, let's say, completely equal, um, mm -hmm. where, I mean, you know, they're, I mean, they're balanced and they're, I mean, not saying all marriages are bad. I'm just saying that in many relationships, it just becomes the woman's burden is large you know it's not just your career but it's also the social life it's also the family it's also that and um it's considered much more normal for a woman to make to sacrifice her career for the man's than the other way around you know if you have anything resembling that there can be a great deal of resentment as i can tell you from personal experience yeah. so, you know so um you know those issues that she's facing are ones that i think many many women feel and you know it's really funny i don't know if you've seen the new barbie film yes yeah and the I speech have. that is made by America Ferreira, and she's talking about womanhood, and you know, you're meant to love motherhood, but you can't love it too much because it becomes all you talk about, and you should have a job and contribute, but you know, you shouldn't love your job too much, is so true. And I, throughout the book, I found myself one minute I would really kind of identify with Jasmine, and in the next minute I'd identify with Rebecca, and I felt this push and pull. A bit like the same sort of thing we're talking about is trying to be everything in That's one right. person. And I felt that in Rebecca, especially, that she was just desperate to try and the pressures were so strong. And meanwhile, the pressures on Jasmine are also very strong in diff very different ways. But I liked that your focus within the women was the difference of pressures, but ultimately they're all the same. They're the same kind of thing. That's right. In the end, you know, I wanted this to be a book not about division. I wanted it to be a book about unity and about the so while highlighting, you know, certainly these two women are inhabiting completely different worlds within that one city of New York. So I thought that was really interesting. And of course, they both love the same child. So, you know, the log line is two mothers, two worlds, one impossible choice. Um, but ultimately, I wanted this to be a book that was that emphasized how much these two women actually have in common, rather than how much they have they how what everything that divides them because you know ultimately they both love their daughter more than anything and they're willing to sacrifice everything including their own lives for her yeah and as a mother reading this when you first pick up the book I felt like well the, the choice is obvious she should be with her birth mother before I'd even read anything I was like well I know what I'm gonna think and then as you read 
you're so conflicted throughout because it is what is best for a child. And I, I don't know a huge amount, as I say, about kind of the adoption process out of China, how many children were adopted in these kind of circumstances and how many birth parents were able to make contact. But I can imagine there were a lot of real life situations that were similar to this, at least in kind of the parents who were put in impossible situations and then had to ask themselves what is best that's right um you know and I, that was i i'm glad you had that type of mixed reaction because that was what i wanted in the book i didn't want a book that was going to be clearly on the side of the birth mother or clearly on the side of the adoptive mother i think that they both have advantages and disadvantages and they both really make big mistakes and so, of course, I mean, Jasmine, it's her child, and she did not know, right? She did not consent to the adoption. But in realistic terms, she's young, she's undocumented, she borrowed all this money to be able to get to the U.S., and she cannot afford to give Fifi the type of life that Rebecca can. Yeah. You know, she's not in state, like, to have a stable family life. She doesn't have any of that. So she loves her child desperately, but it's true that in some ways, you know, Rebecca can provide for Fiona in a way that Jasmine really can't. And of course, at this point in the book, I think Fiona is five and she turns six. You know, she Rebecca is her mom. You know, she's the woman that she's loved her entire life. She's been with her since she was a tiny baby. Um, so yeah, indeed, what is right, right and what is wrong? And I think ultimately there is no right and wrong. It depends yeah. on each individual situation um, and what is ultimately best for that child. Yeah. And it was very poignant to me. Um, Fifi in the book is right slap bang between my two children in age. Um, so whenever I read anything involving children on that age, of course, you always picture yourself and you picture your children. And like you say, there was no... There's no wrong or rights in this. And that's what I liked about this book. And it really is about people being human, making human mistakes, having human connections, having love that they can't control, wanting things they can't have across the board. And I think you captured that beautifully. Oh, thank you. I'm just, I'm really so happy to hear that. And uh, it was really almost an impossible book to write, you know, because it, it's an it's an impossible dilemma. And in the writing of the book, I did a lot of research and I spoke to um, spoke to people from every side of the situation. You know, wow. I spoke to young girls who had been abandoned or, you know, given for adoption um, I spoke to their families. I spoke to people who had adopted Chinese girls and who brought them up and loved them. And I brought, spoke to girls who had been adopted and had grown up in the West, separated from their family in China. So, um, it, you know, in the writing of this book, I it was so hard. You know, normally I, I know the ending and I thought I knew the ending when I started writing. But then I realized, no, it's not nuanced, nuanced enough, that ending. No, you know, that person was supposed to be the bad person. But no, actually, that doesn't feel right. It's got to be someone else. So, you know, just to kind of massage it all into a form where the ending is satisfying, yet um, surprising and feels like it gives everybody kind of their due was uh, was difficult to do. That sounds like a task as you were <laughs> describing it. I'm like, wow, I don't know how you did all that. Because also there's a <laughs> lot of information coming at you from different people, very different perspectives, I'm sure. 
from people not the same situation but people who have got similar experiences probably have very different views on how it was i mean i've discussed adoption many times with my partner and there's always this there's a, a cross thing isn't there if you think you're doing the right thing and if we adopt internationally we're helping a child but then there's also this kind of this white savior thing of we're we're going in we're taking children out of the things they've always known and we're molding them or adapting them it's a very difficult subject and i'm sure it was probably quite daunting for you to tackle as well Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I don't think there's any really right or wrong. I mean, I know that, you know, these things also kind of they're waves of public opinion that are for international adoption. They're against international adoption. And, you know, I, I, I think I would the main point I wanted to make with the book was that in a situation of interracial international adoption, that the adoptive parents have to be very careful to be respect, re respectful of the original culture, the original language, so that the child doesn't feel too alienated in growing up. Um, I think that some parents do make the mistake of trying to say, well, you're just ours now, it doesn't matter. You know, it does matter because if your skin's a different color, you know, the world is not going to treat you the same way. Um, and you're going to get comments at school. You're going to start wondering about your own identity. You're going to think, what if I had been left? And though, you know, I think that it's the task of the adopting parents to help ease that way and to just make sure that somebody isn't just kind of <clears throat> split off from their roots and from where they came from. And after such a, as you say, quite a difficult book to write, a personal book, what comes next for you? How do you follow something like this? Maybe a break. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm doing something a little bit different, uh, although a little bit similar. I am working on a murder set at Harvard. So yes, it's really fun. It's a fun group of young friends, um, but still dealing with issues that I like to deal with, like class and race and, you know, who is actually the killer how do we assume that a person is guilty what kind of assumptions do we make and also because I went to Harvard myself just some of the like inner workings of um, Harvard like there was a house you know a big dormitory and it's not there anymore they got rid of it um, but they, it used to have a swimming pool in the basement and it was a known thing that students would sneak in and swim naked there so right. it was like that was the thing you did was like to swim naked in the adams house take that box you've done that yeah that's yeah. right and you know all kinds of things happened of course when you have people swimming naked in the pool um so you know that's just that it was just like everybody knew where the key was hidden you were not supposed to do it but it was a known everybody looked though with other ways so it's those kind of things that are really little, fun. little things dropped in there <laughs> that's right to incorporate into a novel oh, it's and it's so a murder oh i it, love a murder yeah, i love yes, a good murder, a murder. yes a very good it. murder yeah. <laughs> i'm absolutely there for it and now look we're gonna we're gonna dive into another evening and i know you're doing something a little different for this one but i'm excited so let's tell listeners firstly where we're gonna go for your evening well, actually, I was going to leave that up to you because, oh. so yes, as we talked about earlier, um, I would love to set this novel evening with my characters in my book, just because there's so many kind of dishy details that you don't yep. normally get to um, unless you sit down. And honestly, I would love to sit with them 
for an evening and observe and see their interactions. But I was going to let you choose. I think we can choose one of two settings because our, you know, the, the, basically we have two very different worlds yes. that Jasmine and Rebecca inhabits. We can either have our dinner in a very posh, upscale penthouse with a view of Central Park where Rebecca lives in ultimate wealth, um, or we could set it in an Asian men's club in Chinatown, which is where Jasmine winds up working um, because she's undocumented. She doesn't speak English and she needs, she's borrowed a great deal of money and she needs to pay that money back. So what do you think? Which ones do you think we should pick? Now, I'm a, I'm obviously a very English country mouse. I've never been to <laughs> New York City. I, I, it's on my wish list. And I'm a little scared of opium. I won't lie to you. There's a little part of me that's a little scared. Um, opium is the men's club. Just for That's the men's club. So I'm a little scared mm-hmm. of opium. However, and the idea of the Central Park view is beautiful and this is a tough one because part of me wants to be brave and say, let's go to the men's club. I'm going to do New York City gritty style. I'm going to see the proper New York City, but then I'm a bit scared. Okay, let's go for the men's club. Let's do it. Let's All be right, brave. we will. I would like let's to see Rebecca it. there. That's why. Yes, 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 yes. And I can tell you, I also did a lot of research um, about that men's club. And I, you know, I actually, so I used to, in between my degrees at Harvard and Columbia, I worked for three years as a professional ballroom dancer in oh, New wow. York City. Yes, um, because I wanted to be a writer and I needed a day job and that and I loved to dance. What day job so, to pick? I was a professional ballroom dancer. I know. I, I was pretty surprised myself. But anyway, um, so when I did that, you know, I was really immersed in the professional dance world in New York. And I, um, my roommate was a professional Broadway dancer and b- ballet and classically trained. So I was really in that world um, for a while. And what I saw was that the strip club world and the dance world are very close. You wouldn't think so, but it actually is because... Um, Dancers are beautiful. They have beautiful bodies. They can move. They have the looks and they're really poor. Almost all the time they are broke because whatever money they may be making, they need to put back into um, dance lessons and training and coachings. I did burlesque for a few years. I didn't do it for very long, but every penny you make, you're just buying costumes. You're just buying rhinestones. You're buying hairspray. You're buying makeup. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Those things cost a fortune. So, and you know, uh, what happens to a lot of people is they do what Jasmine did, which is that, you know, you're not going to just go and be, you know, an exotic dancer. You're not just going to start stripping, but how they get you in is they say, well, you could be a cocktail waitress and being a cocktail waitress. What they tell you is nobody will touch you. We have bouncers. No one will touch you. It's an easy job, like waitressing only easier because there's no food, only drinks. And you make a ton of money, a ton of money on tips really, really fast. And so that's kind of the seductive promise. Yeah. That's also extended to Jasmine. Of course, it's not true. <laughs> and they start transgressing your boundaries very fast 
Yeah. But by that time, you're in it. You know, you're in the yeah. costume, you're in the club, you're making money. And it's the money. what's one more thing? Well, if I'm going to make more money, what's just one more thing to do? What if I just do this and I'll get more money? It's so easy to get trapped in there. It's a slippery slope, yeah. you know. And, you know, if you kind of just, you know, go in the normal world and you say, well, would you make out with a man for money? You say, of course not. Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. But when you're in that world and, you know, people start thinking things like, well, I've made out with some real losers and I didn't get paid anything. (laughs) If I make out with this guy and I get a thousand dollars, what, you know, like, you know, people start, you, it's a slippery slope. And so, especially when the club starts putting pressure on you, et cetera. So that Asian um, men's club is a world I know well, and that I have researched extensively. Um, So for example, things like the fact that the women, you know, the staff is pretty much all women. They don't have their own dressing room. You know, they have to use the women's, uh, the ladies room. And somebody said to me, oh, come on. One of the early readers said, oh, that doesn't seem realistic at all. I said, honey, (laughs) it's absolutely true. It's, I don't know if every club does it, but I know a major, very famous club in Times Square. And that is exactly exactly what they do there is no separate dressing room for the women they use the ladies ladies room room. to get changed they do they do they do so i love it i mean i will keep you safe we will stay safe but we will have an exciting time yes um so we are going to have our dinner at opium okay okay i'm intrigued who's joining us who you've chosen from your book to join us because this could be this could be a very inflammatory evening Absolutely. So we're going to start with our two women, right? So we need Jasmine there and we need Rebecca there. And Jasmine, uh, for our listeners, is somebody who is young. She's in her early 20s and very beautiful. But, you know, being beautiful without having any power is really a curse. And that is what you picked up on so astutely. That was her life. She was really used and almost sold because of the way she looked and at a very young age. And because of that, she learned really to hide herself and to hide the way she looks and to be hunched over and, you know, and all of that because she does not want any attention However, the point of every good story is to challenge our um, characters with their biggest, deepest problem. And so, of course, she winds up needing to actually use her beauty, you know, to turn it around and use it as a weapon um, in that club. So we've got Jasmine um, at, at the table. We also have Rebecca from her high class world, her beautiful um penthouse she's probably never been in a men's club in her life nope. and then we're yeah and then we're gonna bring in the guys so oh, this is it yes. this is where I'm like oh who's coming that, that's right that's right I think Anthony has to come don't you think oh I love I, again I don't want to give anything away Anthony is such a beautiful character I think he's one of the few characters in this who doesn't seem to have a mean bone in his body and you needed that this book needs needs a character who's just a straight up good guy he needs to be there right exactly and so anthony was jasmine's childhood best friend and they were never involved they she never thought of him in a romantic way 
but when her um, when she got married off, basically, it broke up their friendship, and he was bitter and resentful for a very long time. And when they run into each other again at the beginning, he's rude to her. He's mad at her. You know, he's childish and pretends he doesn't even recognize her. She's like, what are you, two years old? Um, and she's about to stop off. But then she sees that there's a glimpse of red on his wrist. And she thinks, that looks familiar and it looks like a red string bracelet that she made for him when they were kids and you know in our tradition we believe that that red string will tie two people together um, and it, they will not be separated they will bring them together and actually it does because because of that she pursues him enough to make contact to find out if he really is wearing her bracelet or something else. So Anthony is also sitting down at the table and he is shocked and overwhelmed that um, Jasmine is at a place like this. Yeah. Right. I don't feel you'd be comfortable. Um, and then <laughs> I think, no, oh my gosh, no. But I mean, of course he's strong and, you know, does come you need that, yeah. himself, but that is not at all the type of place that he would go to um, by himself. Um, and then we have to bring in Brandon, right? Rebecca's husband. Brandon. I mean, Brandon sounds very hot. First and foremost, I'm not mad about Brandon being there because he sounds like a very attractive <laughs> chap. He I is extremely it, yeah. hot. Yeah, so I'm cool with him being there. I might have to have a chat with him about some of the things that go on in the book, but... <laughs> Again, he's a twisty character. I want people to rebrand him because you think you know him and then it all changes. That's right. That's right. And so Brandon, you know, when he were first introduced to Brandon in the novel, Rebecca says, our friends call us beauty and the brains with him being the beauty part and her being the brains yeah. part. Um, and that's kind of what I love about their relationship. Even though Brandon is very accomplished in his own right, Rebecca is really the brilliant intellectual. You know, she's the real deal. And he is a professor at Columbia. Um, he's white, but he speaks fluent Chinese. He's a language prodigy. And he speaks a number of languages um, fluently. I also interviewed a language prodigy for the novel. Wow. And so, um, and, you know, one of the things that my friend said to me was, you know, kind of Brandon's curse was that he said, well, the thing about being a prodigy is that the further you move away from childhood, the less remarkable you are until you become like everyone else. And of course, that's not true because, you know, for somebody to have that kind of gift and to have developed it to the extent that Brandon has with his incredible fluency in all of those languages is no small feat, but it can feel like that. Like we all know how it feels like that the world is disappointed in us because we are supposed to change it and we turned out to be just normal instead. Yeah. Um, and so he gives Rebecca full credit for being kind of the intellectual powerhouse in their relationship, um, even though, yes, he is extremely good looking and a twisty character and they love each other very much. But the marriage, you know, the marriage starts to wobble 
yeah in this, I do um, love story. anyone who can speak multiple languages is fine I know you yourself can speak a number of languages um I cannot I do Duolingo French very badly uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's my attempt but I think people who can speak multiple languages is incredible and that really drew me to Browning because I also think if you can speak multiple languages I don't mean you necessarily but you can hide things as well if you oh, can yeah. speak languages your partner doesn't speak or your friends don't speak you can almost have another life. That's right. And that's exactly what starts happening in their family because, you know, Rebecca and Brandon are both white and Fifi is Chinese. Yeah. But because Brandon starts speaking in Chinese to Fifi and they have a Chinese nanny, Lucy, who cares for Fifi, you know, because they become this kind of tiny little family unit yeah. in Rebecca's own home because they're speaking Chinese to each other and she wants it. She does want Fifi to learn her own culture and her own language. But she's completely out. Yeah. She feels like she's the foreigner and that she's the outsider and that they are a little family unit. Um, and indeed, at the end of the book, when there is a... Um, you know, there's an accident and, you know, a kind of climactic moment. There's a doctor involved and the doctor assumes that the nanny and Brandon and Fifi are a family. And when Rebecca walks in, the doctor's like, who are you? Um, yeah. So that's that's hard. Yeah. I used to I used to know someone actually and she was Spanish and she used to speak Spanish to her child a lot and her husband couldn't speak it. And I know that became quite a thing of tension because it's almost you're having this conversation. I can't be part of it. I don't know what you're saying. I feel like maybe you're laughing at me. It could be quite, a, it's a minefield anyway, I think. And then especially as you say, if you bring in the assumptions people make from the outside, it can be a real minefield. That's right. And I especially wanted to have this situation because it's actually what immigrants go through, yeah. right? And it's so often when uh, within an immigrant family, after you move to a new country, the older generation, the parents don't pick up the new language. My parents never learned to speak English right. and the children do, you know, the children pick up that language. It becomes their primary language. They become better in that language than in the home country's um, yeah. language. And then the parents start to feel like they've completely lost control because, you know, there's this gulf between them and their own children. Um, and I know my mom had that, you know, I would be on the phone and laughing and giggling and she'd be like, are you talking to boys? What are you saying? What are you talking about? Yeah. Because she, she couldn't monitor yeah. it. And I mean, I think for those of us outside of that situation, it's, impossible to imagine that your child that you would lose your child in that way and it's, yeah. it's really really heartbreaking but it's something that happens in immigrant families all across the world and so I have this situation only slightly inverted um, in that yeah. family situation as well. So it's gonna be very interesting to see Brandon and Rebecca together especially in this setting an interesting dinner date for a married couple we'll see now this is why I'm getting nervous because these are the guests that I expected to show up, but it depends if you're bringing anybody else. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there are a couple of other people we could bring in, right? What do you yeah. think? Who would you, would you, should we bring Mason? Should we bring, uh, should we bring Don? Should we bring Lone Wolf Jack? 
Ooh. I think those would be the main candidates. Lone Wolf Jack is a very interesting... Again, I don't want to give anything away, but he's in a character I'd like to know more about. I'd like to be able to... If for one night he'd be willing to drop his guard and tell us some secrets, <laughs> I'd like to know more about where he came from, who he is, what brought him to where he is now. Well, I don't know if he's the type of person who would ever let down his guard. Yeah. So Lone Wolf Jack is a bouncer um, who works at Opium and he's Chinese and he's interested in Jasmine and other women as well. But she's new meat and so he's interested in her and he's got kind of that cruelty that is under the surface, you know, where he can just, you can picture him slicing someone's head off and then just going and having a wonderful dinner, you know, because he yeah. loves to eat and he loves food. It's like, he's just got those different facets of himself. Um, and I think, you know, I think Lone Wolf Jack probably had a really terrible upbringing as well, yeah. but his way of dealing with it has been to stuff it all down. And, you know, it's, it's a dog eat dog world is what he thinks. And if you don't eat, then you're going to be eaten. So he's going to just do whatever it takes to um, make sure that he gets his own way. Yeah, I do terrified of him a little part of me when I first read him thought maybe he's got like a teddy bear side like maybe he's not that like maybe I think maybe not but I would be willing to find out yes yes absolutely um I think that yeah I think that he can come across um as more charming but I would say that fundamentally you probably he's probably not <laughs> a guy not gonna you, should, you should trust yeah yeah and of course he <laughs> He and Anthony, you know, would face off. In fact, that, that got cut from the book. I think it got cut from the book. He and, they don't face off in the book, do they? I'm sorry. Now I can't even remember. <laughs> they don't, right? They don't have a... No, they don't I don't think so. Now you're saying yeah. I'm like, did I imagine? No, no, they don't. They don't. In the in one of the drafts, it was it's, it's a kind of deleted scene. Um, there is a moment... But when, we can see that at this evening. We might see this live yeah, and in action. Oh, that's right. That's right. Because what happens is so. So then, if Lone Wolf Jack is coming, then we have to bring in Dawn as well. She'd um, be there, wouldn't she? She would. She could she would not be. be there. She'd either be working or she'd be. He'd have her there. Maybe that's we should right. have Mason stumble out of the champagne room. Exactly. Oh my God, we we've got the whole cast. Then we've got the whole cast. So Dawn, Dawn is a beautiful woman who works at opium with jasmine and they are friends um and don is kind of a lost soul who has a really kind um part but you know she does the drugs she's lost yeah. she's just kind of lost her way and she believes well you know i better make the money while I'm still beautiful yeah. because otherwise I'm going to have nothing. And, you know, I get used by men. I might as well be paid for it. So then in a way I'm using them back. So she's cynical in a way, but she also has a pure side and she is in love with Lone Wolf Jack. They're dating and he's got an eye on Jasmine. Um, and in, in the deleted scene, what happened 
Uh, and so we can also picture this happening in the novel. So those of you who have not read the book yet, you can come back and listen to this after you've read the novel. You can think, oh, yes. now I know what um, that deleted scene would have meant. But what happens is that Dawn decides to leave him. She gathers up the strength to leave Lone Wolf Jack. And... Um, and he's furious, you know, and of course, what he's going to do is he's going to grab her and take her. And Jasmine puts herself in between them um, to say, stop, stop, don't, don't touch her. But Jasmine is also, you know, a um, not as strong as this enormous, you know, physical gangster um, bouncer guy and Anthony shows up and he interjects himself into the fight and Anthony as we know if when we read the book is a martial artist and teaches self-defense classes that Jasmine goes to um, and so he can hold his own um, against Lone Wolf Jack and they fight uh, they begin to fight and but you know it's it it can go either way that fight it's getting you know it's getting pretty bad because the man it's grown is versus huge. speed it's that that's right yeah that's right exactly exactly and he's huge and he's ruthless right I mean yeah. sometimes the person who wins the fight is the one who is the willing to inflict the most damage without any you know any care yeah. whatsoever and what happens is that um, Lone Wolf Jack picks up a wine bottle and he breaks it and he's you know holds it up as a weapon and they are outside opium there are cops milling around and jasmine yells he's got a weapon and the policemen all they can see is a big guy with a weapon and they come and they take him down and while he's mm. taking taken down the rest of them run Oh, um, but this could happen at this evening. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Things can go where the very exits wrong. are. That's what I just need. Where the exits are, I can hide under a table. I'm not getting involved. That's right. <laughs> no, no, God, no. Usually I would ask if there's anyone not welcome to this evening, but I think there's a fairly obvious answer to yes. this one. So we know yes. Jasmine is married. And I'm assuming that he's the chap we don't necessarily want to appear at our evening. Absolutely. She is on the run from her husband. And he's not actually her husband, right? So this is yeah. a complicated thing. They In Chinese tradition, we are in the old tradition, we are considered married if there's a wedding banquet. And everyone comes to celebrate and there's a banquet. They had the banquet. However, Jasmine was very young. Yes. Way under the age of consent when they had that banquet and not legally allowed to marry in China because there are laws in China about how old you have to be um, to be legally wed. And over the years, she has managed to put him off legalizing their marriage until she's, you know, gotten away and been able to escape. So they are technically not married, but in his eyes, they are. And some ways, yet yeah, they have lived together as man and wife. But he is the one who gave um, Fifi away for adoption. And he is the one who's wondering what happened to his beautiful wife, who he does not treat well. 
but is obsessed with. And he is hot on her trail. And so indeed, he's absolutely the one we do not want at this dinner. He is not welcome. That would That's a level of drama too far. I think we've got a nice simmering dangerous tension on this evening and that would tip it over. Oh, absolutely. If he, if he came in, it would explode into violence um, <laughs> and yeah, and chaos. Absolutely. Um, so no, he can't come. Well, I think you are the first person on a novel evening to set your evening at a gentleman's club. <laughs> so you've got the award for that. And I love the fact that you have brought your characters to this evening. And the only other thing I thought of is opium doesn't serve food. What will we eat? Ooh, that's cheap. That's actually a good point. It's a cocktail mm. um, place. Mm. But, you know, they do bring in food. I mean, of course, they can easily bring in food from next door. There is a line in the novel about how, um, you know, a lot of the exotic dancers have another side you know there is, yeah. there is a culture where everyone is used and it's all about money and it's all about fleecing the customers mm -hmm. and fleecing each other but then there's another side too where some of the exotic dancers are studying English and one wants to be a nurse and one has a kid who comes in and is eating chicken wings in the corner and everybody allows him to do it and he gets drinks for free you know non-alcoholic drinks for free so there's a takeout place just outside so i'm sure okay. we can get somebody to run out get some food for us and bring it back in and my final question is what is your cocktail of choice that jasmine can make behind the bar oh my goodness that's really difficult i'm not very complicated when it comes to alcohol i mean i i don't i'm not thrilled about the taste of alcohol so i like um I like things that are, you know, fairly light, like a gin and tonic. That okay. that would do me for a while. What about you? What do you like? I to always drink? have a nice margarita. Mm, yes, yes. Or a frozen, like a pina colada or something. Yeah. Those are nice. Yes. That's nice daiquiri. I'm the same. I, I do like tequila. That's one of the few alcohols I can taste in. But mm. otherwise, I like something a bit fruity. I do too. I like the icy or... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what would you order to eat? What would you have them bring in to you from outside? Ooh. Do you know what? I have to say at the moment, I am I am loving ramen. I'm eating so much ramen oh, at the moment. <laughs> my kid, too. He's eating nothing really? but ramen these days. Yes. I love it. Yes, I, That's my too. favorite. Me with too. some gyoza. That would probably be... And also, I love duck. I love duck in all of its forms. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, Yes. Absolutely. And that actually fits in very well thematically with the book because you remember uh, Rebecca is a publishing executive and yeah. she wants to land this brilliant author to save Rebecca's career because she's gotten involved in a scandal. And the author says um, being an author is like being the duck in a Peking duck restaurant. That's what it's like. Have. That's right. You know, there's no restaurant without the duck, but nobody consults the duck on policy either. Yeah, that's what we need to have then. I'd be very, very happy. What would you be ordering? Oh, I love duck. I, I love it. And actually, duck. the last time I was in London, um, I was taken out to Chinese food by my UK editor for um, the collection Marple. I was one of 12 authors asked to write a um, by the Agatha Christie estate to write a story involving Miss Marple. And so we were there for the launch and we all went out and we had duck and it was 
fabulous. Oh my god, I'm getting I so hungry know you just thinking of it. On the Marple book, basically where I live, I live very close to Agatha Christie's house. Um, I no! live in Torbay, so I'm right where she lived. In fact, I went to. There's a picture house here that's being restored. So I saw the seats where she and her butler would sit in the theater that they'd go to. Wow! There was a big thing here about the Marple collection and the Marple book. It was a huge thing here. Happy to hear that. Yeah, that was a wonderful collection, an incredible experience. They collected such brilliant writers. Um, and we all became the Marple sisters, you know, like Ruth oh. Ware, Lucy Foley, Kate Moss. I mean, we had such a fun time writing those stories and being able to use Miss Marple as a character was such a treat. Oh, incredible, incredible. Yeah, no, it was a it was a very big deal. I'm, I'm awful. I have not read Agatha Christie. I intend to. This will be the year I do it. I live in her hometown, so it's a travesty that I haven't. Uh, but if you're ever down this way, I would very happily take you to her house. You can go and visit it and see where she's been writing, and you can visit the grounds. Oh, it's beautiful. Wow. Yes, I would love that. That you sounds amazing. That it's a Next time yes, you come to the UK, that's it's what we should. We'll take some Peking duck and we will go to Greenway. <laughs> After our night in the Gentleman's Club together, I think that's a perfect follow-up date. Absolutely. I think we'd need that. And look, before I let you go, Jean, because it's getting very late in the Netherlands, I have to ask if you're reading anything at the moment. Oh, well, actually, there's. I would really love to read the new Karen Slaughter book. So I have not read it yet, but it's the latest in her Will Trent series, um, and it's called After That Night. And uh, so it sounds amazing. And I have I have a tiny little story to tell you about Karen. Do and th the thing is, you know, Karen Slaughter is a superstar. And usually when a writer is, becomes, hits that level, it's pretty hard to reach them. And if yep. you want, for example, a quote for your book, um, it's it's hard to get a quote from someone at that level just because everyone is asking them and they would never write another word if they were to quote everyone who asked them so pretty uniformly you know no and impossible to get to them well I don't know Karen at all um we don't know anybody in common we're not friends on social media or anything and suddenly I heard from my publisher that she had requested the leftover woman I thought what this was way before publication, of course, because, you know, the book's not even out yet. And she requested it and she read it and she provided a quote completely of her own free will. So, in fact, it is it's in I think they have it. They, they've got her on the back. A haunting, emotionally yeah. powerful story. Quack is an impressive talent. So and we hadn't requested it. She just volunteered it out of the goodness of her heart. So I just feel like that's just such a testament to how wonderful people can be. That's incredible. I mean, she is an absolute legend. I mean, I'm looking at the back of the book of the quotes as well. And there is a lot of incredible names hanging out in the back of your book. But Karen Slaughter, I remember my mum had a copy of, it might have been Pretty Girls. And I remember being way Ooh. too young to be allowed to ever read that book. But I remember like you'd steal it and I'd be like, I'm just going to have a little look. And I'd be like, nope, that's horrific. 
And I still have a copy of that book that I'm not brave enough to pick up yet. But now I shall. I will read it in your honor yeah. and try not to yeah. leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and Karen, it's, you know, it's funny. Karen is the loveliest person, just like Ruth Ware and Lucy Foley. And, you know, they're so cozy and... You know, like you could picture yourself making apple pies together and then, you know, you read the books and people are getting dismembered and thrown off cliffs and off of cruise ships. And you're like, oh, my goodness. That's like my mum would you, I remember my mum reading these horrific books and she'd just be eating a sandwich or something while she's reading these absolutely horrendous books. And she'd just be having like a snack. You got to watch these women because they always seem like you say you could bake apple pies with them. My mum is a real over here. We have Marks and Spencers. My mum is a real Marks and Spencers mum, and she'll just be reading people being eviscerated while she's having a scone. I love it. Now look, it's getting so late where you are, but thank you so very much. This has honestly been such a joy, and I wish you all the best with the book. It deserves everything. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. I've had the best time thank you for listening to this episode of the novel evening i hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as i enjoyed making it please remember to go over and rate subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcasts and check us out on instagram at a novel evening podcast and over on tiktok under the same name and we'll see you next week Bye bye